We're working through the confession. We are now in chapter 7. I have a new pointer. You realize how risky giving me new technology is without instruction? All right, now we've, we've looked at chapter 1's about Scripture. Then we look at God. And then we look at the decree of God. There's an order to their thinking. Then we look at providence. We look at the fall. That was our last chapter, chapter 6. Now we're working into salvation, and it begins with God's covenant with man. Use this one. There we go. Okay. Here's the, it's, here's the fascinating opening statement. Not what you would have thought about covenant theology is this. The distance between God and the creature is so great that although reasonable creatures do owe obedience unto him as their creator, yet they could never have any fruition of him as their blessedness and reward but by some voluntary condescension on God's part, which he has been pleased to express by way of covenant. Now, let me unpack that a little bit. Uh, it is a long run-on sentence. It is. And, uh, and, 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 and this is, uh, she's going, oh, no, he can hear me. Yes, I can. So say, so say nice things as your pastor's preaching. Well, the first thing we need to know is what does the word covenant mean? A covenant is a formal, legal, oath-bound bond or relationship between two or more parties. A contract is not exactly the right word, but there's something to that. Uh, Abraham and Abimelech in Genesis 27, they cut a covenant over the management of a, of a, of a water source and Beersheba. Uh, divine covenants, we don't want to say contract because a contract is two equal parties. Uh, it's not two equal parties in our covenants with the Lord. But they are legally bound relationships uh, that are oath bound before the Lord. Uh, the one that we're most familiar with is marriage. You know, our society is saying marriage, why we even have marriage? We just live together while we, and, that, and of course that's sowing chaos throughout our society. A marriage is a kind of, uh, of covenant relationship. That's why we have weddings, which is an oath-making ceremony, whereby we bind ourselves to conditions to, for the privilege of marriage. Now, what the divines are saying in, in that statement about divine condescension is that by virtue of the creator-creature distinction, God is never bound, God is never required to bless or reward mankind. He is the creator. Uh, there's nothing we can give to him, and there's nothing he owes to us. And, when, and we're about to enter into the whole idea of God blessing us, and the first thing they want to say is this whole category is God's condescending, him stooping to do something that he is under no obligation to do. He chooses to do it. It's a reflection of who and what he is. He's a God of grace. But it's condescension. And so when we start talking about covenants, which are legal structures, we're going to rule out from the beginning us deserving anything or God owing us anything. Now you go, why did they use the word condescension? I think the answer is they didn't want to use the word gracious. Probably the first synonym you're going to think about is, 
in all of God's dealings, he is gracious. With why, don't we want, why don't we want to use gracious? Because biblically, grace is a post-lapsarian term, a post-fall term. Biblical grace is towards sinners. And, of course, you have a covenant before there is sin. And so we're not going to use the word grace for it, although saying God, God is gracious is, is not wrong. We're just trying to be terminologically clear. The divines say he's being condescending. By, by the way, for us, condescending is a bad word. You're so condescending. Uh, well, not when you're God. It, it means he is choosing to stoop to do something that he has no obligation upon himself to do. Um, and, so, and, and so one thing we want to know is that man owes obedience to God not by virtue of covenant but by virtue of creation. He is the creator. We are the creature. De facto, he is the Lord. He is the suzerain. He is the master. And so we have a 100% obligation by virtue of being creatures to obey him. Someone says to you, I don't have to obey God. I'm not, I'm not in the church. Well, God ain't buying that. Uh, God's the creator of that person. And by virtue of being creator, he expects, demands, and is owed 100% obedience from each of us. Now notice I say here as well, neither does our obedience ever put God under obligation to us. There's never any way in which we earn or deserve, much less require blessing from God because we did something for him, because we are his creatures by virtue of creation. We owe him all worship, obedience, and fidelity. I have Luke 17.10. That's where Jesus tells a parable about the workers and the, the people who came late got the same reward, same payment as those who went early. And Jesus says, look, you did what you were supposed to do. You got paid for what you're supposed to do. You, you know, it's all a matter of duty to you. That's the same principle. All our obedience, no, there's never merit in our obedience. There's never uh, 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 God owing us. Because I did this for God, therefore he gives this to me. No, no, no. He made you. You owe all things to him. Moreover, God is always sovereign in establishing the terms of the covenants. The covenants are what they are because God willed them to be that way. And you go, well, and some people say, you know, why, do, why must I be saved by believing in Jesus Christ? I want to be saved another way. Well, the answer to that is you don't get to decide any of those. Because I, I hate to, I know it's not loving of me to tell you this, but you are not God. And I know that's a shocking thing to say in a therapeutic America. Have I triggered anybody here? You're, I mean, the deacons can minister to you and give you a, a legal form to sue me. No, you are not God. God is God. Who does, who does he think he is? God or something? Yes, he is God. He thinks he's God. And so in all the covenant, God never comes down and says, look, Abraham, let's work this out. No, it's thus saith the Lord. And so all the covenants are sovereignly given and administered to by God. Um, what God is doing, though, in his... In his now, you need to say all of that in order to properly then say this. God is condescending. His condescension is in granting us a right to his blessing not according to our obedience, but according to his promise. Now, I don't have time. I, actually, I once did an entire season 
uh, Wednesday night addresses on covenant theology. I think I've done them twice in my 15 years here. And we did like 12 nights on covenant theology. There's so much more that I can say here. But one thing about the covenants is they do establish our ability to know that we possess God's blessing and that we have a right, yes, a legal right to it, but it's never on the basis of our having earned it by obedience. It's always by means of God's promise. Uh, You see those lockets, and maybe when you were dating, you had them, and you had one half and your girlfriend had the other, and they fit together, right? Actually, it's more BFFs, I guess. Best girlfriends forever. Yeah, thank you. Sorry. Uh, Oh, I know Matt. You and Matt had them. Your little charm bracelets, and Matt had your charm on his, and, and they clicked together. Well, the covenants are that way. God establishes conditions, provisions, and when we meet those provisions, it, the, the lockets click together, and we now possess the legal right to it. Now, the, I'm getting ahead of myself, but the incredible thing about the covenant of grace is he not only grants us a condition by which we may know that we have the right to eternal life, he then fulfills that condition in us by means of his Holy Spirit. So it's all of grace. But, but that's what covenant theology does. And, you know, I, I, there are Calvinists, you don't want to say, I don't mean this meanly, but our Reformed Baptist brethren, I, whenever someone says I'm a, I'm, I'm a Reformed Baptist, my mind, I usually don't say it, but my mind thinks, you cannot be Reformed and Baptist. You may be Calvinistic and Baptist because covenant theology, that's why we baptize babies, is because of covenant theology. Covenant theology is a big deal to Reformed theology. And so you can be predestinarian, but the Reformed faith involves... Covenant theology is a huge deal to us. And I, I, think, and I think it is to you too. And it shapes the way we view our families. It shapes the way we view our children. It shapes the way we view our lives. Covenant theology is a huge deal in part because it grants us a perspective on assurance that you cannot otherwise have. I say God's covenant is our basis for assurance. In other words, God establishes a condition solely by his grace We fulfill that condition. That condition is fulfilled in us. And now by the legal arrangement he has made, he has bound himself to the fulfillment of it, and we know that he has. And so getting ahead of myself, if I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, then I know that God has bound himself covenantally to me. In fact, that's the whole thing when Abraham walks, when when God makes his covenant with Abraham, he, he, you know, the, the Old Testament, the ancient Hittite covenantal form was the severing of animals. And then the two parties making the covenant would walk between the animals. And it was a way of saying, if I violate this covenant, let what was done to those animals be done to me. And then when God pronounces the covenant of grace to Abraham, Abraham doesn't walk through it. God does, the smoking fire pot. And Bran goes through it. And God is saying, if I do not save the one who believes on the mediator I'm going to send, let me die. 
Now, that's very convenient when you happen to be one of those people who does believe on the mediator he sent because you know that God is going to fulfill it. And that's what he's getting at in Hebrews 6.17. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. That's covenant theology talk. God wants not only to establish a basis for our salvation, but a basis of our salvation that we know. And we know he has bound himself to. He bound himself. He guaranteed it with an oath. Now, God did not bind himself with his oath. That's referring to the Abrahamic covenant. In order to make himself, you know, he's not trying to gain a little moral leverage on himself to keep from failing. God has need no, God is never going to fail. He's showing us the certainty of the covenant. And so in this way, the covenants of God are essential to a biblically sound doctrine of assurance. And dare I say, without the doctrines of the covenants, you will tend to see assurance problems among people who believe in the doctrine of election. If you believe that God is sovereign, that he chose some and not others, and you don't believe in God's covenants, then you're going to see a tendency. In, in very, I, I was up in, a, in another country, actually, a couple of years ago, among some dear people, dear Calvinistic people. I love them. And they weren't straight on covenant theology. And the big issue among them was assurance. And it was, it was kind of shocking to me, the extent to which they didn't have assurance and the way it was kind of industrialized among them. Uh, the big thing in their church was, and this is apparently not a rare thing in those circles, when they would administer the Lord's sacrament, nobody would take it because that would be presumptuous. And it was like, and that was considered to be, you know, uh, uh, I'm, not, I'm not making this up. A Lord, an administration of the Lord's Supper in which only one or two people in the congregation took it, that was seen as high piety. And coming from a covenant theology perspective, you're horrified. Because if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you know, and you, you know, and by believer I mean a baptized member of the church, you know that you have a right to the things that God has provided for you in Christ. And you take, you have assurance rightly established, and sinner though you are, you're not afraid, in this case, to take the Lord's Supper. Anyway, I want to make that point about God's covenants. Oops. Okay. Chapter 2, or paragraph 2, says this, the covenant of works. The first covenant made with man was a covenant of works, wherein life was promised to Adam and in him to his posterity, upon condition of perfect and personal obedience. Can you read that? Yes, you can read that, right? Okay. So first, they're, they're actually, the, the, the confession does not go through all the covenants. That's why I had a longer series. I went through all the covenants. The confession's going to deal with the covenant of works, the covenant of grace, the two big covenant categories. And the history of God's covenants with his people begins in the Garden of Eden, as you would expect, because there he has his first creatures, and he is the Lord of them, and he establishes, doesn't negotiate with Adam, he informs Adam of the terms of the covenant, and they are these, obedience. That, that's it. 
And the verse is, of course, Genesis two sixteen to 17. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you surely shall die. Now, why do we say the condition was obedience? Well, you know, the condition is not eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which was a test of obedience. That's the point. We don't believe there was anything particularly special about either tree. They were sacramental symbols, and God, uh, God was demanding, he was saying, Adam, in our creator-creature relationship, the way for you to have life is through, as the confession puts it, perfect personal obedience. Now, let's work through covenant theology about it. First thing in covenants is who are the parties? The parties are God and Adam and his posterity. Secondly, what's the condition? Well, the condition clearly is obedience, perfect personal obedience. Thirdly, what's the promise? The problem is life. Now, you see that in negative. If the sanction is death, the opposite of that is life. And there's plenty of other verses later in the Bible to show that what was being offered to Adam was eternal life. The sanction, if he violates it, what will he suffer? He will suffer death. The parties are God and man and, and, and his posterity, Adam and his posterity. The, uh, the condition is perfect personal obedience. The promise is life. The sanction is death. On the day that you eat of it, you surely shall die. Now, this is the basis for our doctrine of original sin. Because uh, the big issue here is that the parties include Adam and and his posterity. In other words, you and me. Adam was a federal head. The word feodus is Latin for covenant. You happen to live in a covenant government. Um, We hear a lot about democracy being under attack in America. Well, that's odd because America is not a democracy and was never set up as a democracy. America is a covenant form of government, a Republican, a Theodal form of government. And so if the ambassador to France signs a treaty with France and then somebody attacks France, then you have to send your children or you have to join the army and fight them. And you go, well, I never signed a treaty with France. Yes, you did. When the, when it's a federal government. When the ambassador, ratified by the Senate, signed that treaty, you signed a treaty. They, what they did is enforced upon you. That's a covenant, that's covenant theology. And Adam was our representative. And so when Adam failed rather spectacularly, the sanctions of that covenant fell upon you and your parents and your neighbor and your children. The sanction of death. And of course, that's a comprehensive thing. It's not only physical death. Adam lived a long time, but he did die. But he suffered spiritual death immediately. And, the, and as Paul says in Romans 8, there was a cosmic death. Uh, second law of thermodynamics and all that. There's death at work in the natural order. Now, the Pelagians, you remember Pelagius is that contemporary of St. Augustine who denies original sin. He denies that there's a. He denies that you have a sin problem. You're only. You're only. You're not born guilty. You're not born corrupt. You just have bad examples, and that leads to the whole works religion of Pelagius that the early church condemned. Uh, well, what they're denying is that Adam, his fall involved his posterity, because as we saw last chapter on of the fall, 
is that when Adam broke the covenant of works, his guilt and his corrupt nature passed on to us by natural generation. We all are, in fact, you weren't here last time. I said the only children in our church are angel, who are little angels have uh, two L's in their name. So that was my, my joke. You weren't here last time. Because uh, they're all born sinners. They're all born guilty. They're all born corrupt. Now, to deny that is to be engaged in a different religion than Christianity. Now, the problem with Arminianism is that they equivocate on it. They will say man is born sick but not spiritually dead, and we'll cover that as well further on, but that's not what the Bible teaches. We are born spiritually dead. Now, you say, well, why do we believe that Adam is a federal head? That Adam, when he fell under the covenant of works, why did that include, why is why is the, the penalty of that also imposed upon all of his offspring? Well, one answer is Romans chapter 12, Romans chapter 5. In Romans 5, 12, Paul's dealing with these questions. And speaking of Adam's fall, he says, in that all sinned. He doesn't mean that because Adam sinned, you therefore sin. He means that when Adam sinned, you sinned. So the Bible says that Adam's sin was our sin. Of course, we were in Adam. And Adam is called a type of the one to come. The one to come is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Jesus is our representative head as our Savior. Likewise, Adam was our representative head in the fall. 1 Corinthians 15, 47 to 49, speak of the first man and the second man. William Perkins, the old Puritan, said that every person ever born is, is like is hanging on Adam's belt. But in conversion, God, by the Holy Spirit, takes us off of Adam's belt and he places us onto Christ. You are either in Adam and under the fall, or you are in Christ and under redemption. Robert Shaw says, as Christ was a federal head representing all his spiritual seed in the covenant of grace, so Adam was a federal head representing all his natural seed in the covenant of works. Now, by the way, uh, none of this is relevant if there was no Adam and Eve. It's one of the reasons we're so militantly against the doctrine of evolution. Not only is it contrary to Scripture on the surface of it, but one of the most devastating impacts is it merely eviscerates the Christian religion of the structure of its doctrine. Other than that, it fits in pretty well. But that's bad. Uh, if, if there's no Adam, specially created by God, you don't have any of this. Well, paragraph three then turns to the covenant of grace. Now, you could go, you could say you got the covenant with Adam, you got the covenant with Noah, you didn't get the covenant with Abraham, the covenant with Moses, the covenant with David, the covenant with Christ. That's true. But the later covenants are all gathered together under what we call the covenant of grace. Man by his fall, having made himself incapable, incapable of life by that covenant, the Lord was pleased to make a second covenant, commonly called the covenant of grace. And here's beautiful language. Wherein he freely offereth unto sinners life and salvation by Jesus Christ. 
requiring of them faith in him that they might be saved and promising to give unto all those that are ordained unto eternal life his Holy Spirit to make them willing and able to believe. And so the covenant of works having been broken, God then sent his son to fulfill the covenant of works on our behalf. By faith in Christ, we are forgiven, we are justified, and we are made heirs to eternal life. Now again, Romans 5, 12 to 21 is the passage that's going to really structure this all out. But listen to this in Romans 5, 18 to 19. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, that's Adam's fall. Adam's fall condemned all men and women. So one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. You see the parallel between Adam and, uh, and Christ, as Adam is a type of the one who is to come. Uh, and so the covenant of grace is when we, we start out, now we, use, now we mean biblical grace. God's grace for sinners, people who are under his demerit, who are justly under his wrath. It's to such people that he sends his son. He sends the Lord Jesus Christ. And the covenant of grace is God sending Jesus to fulfill the covenant of works and to pay our debt under it. And grace is that God freely offereth unto sinners life and salvation by Jesus Christ. Well, let's look through the forms here. Who are the parties? They are God and man. What is the condition? Faith in the Lord, faith in a mediator, faith in, the, in Christ. What's the promise? Eternal life. What is the sanction? Eternal death. And so the covenant of grace is God bringing into the sinful world the message and then the reality of a Savior who will deliver us from the fall and who will establish in himself righteousness and life. And through faith alone, we receive it. In unbelief, we receive eternal death. Uh, listen to the echoes of this in John 3.36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Oh, there's, your, there's the condition and the sanction right there. The con- now you go... Isn't faith a work? We'll get to that, but the answer is no, because faith is something that God gives to us. And so we ha- here's, the, here's the thing. This is a wonderful thing about God's covenants. It's not just covenant theology. It's the biblical teaching of the covenants. Is that God tells me, sinner though I am, guilty under the law, utterly corrupt, totally depraved, unable to believe as the Bible teaches, God says to me, if you believe in the mediator, in the Christ who has come now, then you will be forgiven, you'll be justified, and you will be an heir of eternal life. The problem is, I can't believe. But for those whom God has chosen, his grace is so great that he grants that faith. And so here's the beauty of it. There is a condition. We do the condition. And yet the condition is all of grace. But if I have faith, if I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, now that's my half of the locket. Now I know that I'm in the covenant that God established, not only that I would have eternal life, but that I would know that I have it. 
And I would know that I have a right to it, not by virtue of works, but by promise. God's promise of grace establishes my right to it. How wonderful is the covenant of grace. And so to be saved is to be in a gracious covenant relationship with God. Donald McLeod says, I may be a very humble believer. I may be an untalented believer. But every believer is in covenant with God. It is totally secure because God is righteous. And God being righteous means that God is a covenant keeper. And so if you possess eternal life, if you you possess faith in Jesus as God's gift to you, you possess eternal right and you have the ability to know that you possess eternal life. Well, a couple of more things to work on. Uh, Mainly it's going, the rest of the confession is going to deal with the Old Testament, New Testament relationship and experience of the covenant of grace. Now, first, Uh, This covenant of grace is frequently set forth in Scripture by the name of testament in reference to the death of Jesus Christ, the testator, and to the everlasting inheritance with all things belonging to it therein bequeathed. Well, I would quibble that it is not frequently set forth in Scripture that way. Hebrews chapter 9, 15 to 17 uses the metaphor of a last will and testament. The, The issue actually is that the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the LXX, used testament incorrectly to translate the Hebrew word berith. It should have been diatheke, and there were a number of places where that particular translation used suntheke. Suntheke means testament. What the divines are saying is, let's not argue about that. That's what they're saying. Now, what they're really getting at is paragraph 5. This covenant was differently administered in the time of the law, the Old Testament, and in the time of the gospel. Under the law, it was administered to by, ministered by promises, prophecies, sacrifices, circumcision, the Paschal Lamb, and other types and ordinances delivered to the people of the Jews, all four signifying Christ. So what they're saying is Old Testament saints were saved through faith in Jesus. Well, where was Jesus in the Old Testament? In the prophecies, in the promises, in the, in the, in the, I mean, there's so many things. In the feast schedule, in the rituals of the Levites, the, the cleansing rituals, in the, 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 the Paschal, in circumcision. And they were all for signifying Christ to come, which were for that time sufficient and efficacious through the operation of the Spirit to instruct and build up the elect in faith in the promised Messiah, by whom they had full remission of sins and eternal salvation, and is called the Old Testament. So an Old Testament believer is really saved, although their situation was not as efficacious as ours. We'll get to that. But, you know, my favorite is uh, Psalm 51, 7, where David, when he's saying it's his great penitential psalm, He's committed the sin with Bathsheba and Uriah, and he's repented. He comes to the Lord, have mercy on me, Lord. He confesses his sin. And then he says, cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. What's hyssop? Well, hyssop is the sponge that even today grows in the promised land. There's hyssop on the wall, on the wailing wall. That's what that stuff is in the cracks. And that's what the priests use for their, as sponges for the sprinkling of the atoning blood. And so what David is saying there, when he says, cleanse me with hyssop and I'll be clean, what he's saying is, let what that represents. Now, if you say to me, how well could David 
have articulated the New Testament doctrine. That's not a clear answer. Although I have to say in my long study of the Old Testament, I think a lot more than we give them credit for is the right answer. But they looked in faith through the types and signs and the rituals towards the Savior who would come. He knew there would be a Messiah who would come and whose atoning death would be used for the forgiveness of his sins. He says, cleanse me with hyssop and I'll be clean. So uh, uh, here's the big point. Same gospel in the Old Testament. This whole idea that Old Testament saints were saved by works is contrary to the whole teaching of the Bible. They were saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, but it was administered differently again through the types, through the prophecies, through the rituals were pictures of Christ. Uh, The Old Testament, I mentioned all that, their faith was directed. They were looking forward to a Savior who was to come. You and I look back on a Savior who has come and is coming again. They had full remission of sins and eternal salvation. Now, for this reason, the Old Testament is our book. Of course, you know I believe that because I preach a lot of the Old Testament, and and why should we not? That is, we're not when we are reading the Old Testament, we are not peering into somebody else's religious experience. We are peering into our family, our spiritual family heritage. There are differences. The way it was administered was different. But the same God, the same gospel, the same covenant arrangement, the same Savior, he just had not yet come. And then finally, paragraph 6. Under the gospel, when Christ the substance was exhibited, the ordinances in which this covenant is dispensed are the preaching of the word and the administration of the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. So in the Old Testament, you had the feasts, you had all the rituals of the Levites. Sometimes you slew a bull. Well, that's not, imagine the slaying of a bull. That would not be easy. Uh, or the, you know, the, the prophecies. There's all these different rituals. In the New Testament, it's the preaching of the word and the administration of the sacraments. Which, though fewer in number and administered with more simplicity and less outward glory... Yet in them it is held forth in more fullness, evidence, and spiritual efficacy. You know, sometimes you think, I do too, wouldn't it have been great to be at the temple? And there's the priest with the head, you know, the whole thing, and his sash, and the breastplate with the names, and the earthly glory of it, all the splendor of it, thousands of people singing the songs of the set. What they're saying is, when you and I sit in the pews and hear the gospel preached, we are, we are not... We're not settling for less. We're experiencing more than they ever had or imagined. They imagined it, actually. But that's, that's, that's so much more powerful and real than it had been in, in the temple in the Old Testament. More fullness, evidence, and spiritual efficacy to all nations, both Jews and Gentiles, and it is called the New Covenant. There are not, therefore, two covenants of grace, differing in substance, but one and the same, under various dispensations. Well, uh, Chad Dis Van Dixhorn says, under the gospel, we find Christ himself. In the New Testament, we have Christ himself. He has come. This is why, I, this is why Christmas, I think, is such an endearing and special time. Because while we know that that baby was born to die and rise again, and Easter, in some sense, is the more full holiday, more biblically accurate in terms of timing and all that the sheer 
mind-blowing blessing that the Savior has come, that Jesus has appeared, that for all those centuries the people of God were longing for, like Simeon and Anna representing them in the temple. And, and the Savior has come, and now the gospel is the person and work of Christ himself. He is the substance of the promise and of all the Old Testament types and signs. Jesus in his person and work is the gospel. That's why we so often speak of union with Christ through faith. We possess Christ and all his benefits of his person and work through faith. Now that Christ having come then, the means of grace are simplified and they are spiritualized. People say, oh, you're spiritualizing it. That's actually a compliment. People say, you're spiritualizing the Bible. I should, in fact, I should have capitalized it. Shame on me for not capitalizing that S. Uh, holy spiritualized. Yes, we are. Because of Pentecost. Because the Spirit is poured out in fullness. And so now it's not in the forms themselves, but it's in the Spirit who is poured upon the preached word and the sacraments. Uh, and because of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in Pentecost, the gospel has more spiritual efficacy under the new covenant. Uh, and by the way, that does mean when you look at the Old Testament, you go, Man, those guys were a mess. Well, you live post-Pentecost. <laughs> and so there's a fullness of the Spirit and an efficacy of the Spirit for daily living that is, is new in our day. We should outpace the Old Testament saints. I'm not saying we do. We should. Um, in the New Covenant, the, co- the covenant of grace that is proclaimed to all the world. In the Old Covenant, Paul explains this a number of places, where the Old Covenant, where the gospel was contained by the law, the purpose of the law, all its restrictions, you have to dress funny, you have to wear your hair funny, you can't eat meals with anybody. What's going on there? It's keeping Israel from assimilating into the nations in the time before the Messiah has come. But now that the Messiah has come, the gospel goes out to the world. You know, you and I, are, we're standing on territory that was how far from Jerusalem? You know, who was living here 2,000 years ago? Uh, the gospel has come here and to Taiwan and to all around the world because of the power unleashed by the coming of Christ. And so John says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. Here's the new covenant. We've seen his glory, glory as of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. And he writes in his first epistle, And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and everlasting life. The covenants are fulfilled in Christ. But having said that, Why this covenant structure? So that you may know by the fulfillment of the condition of the covenant of grace, which is faith alone in Christ Jesus, which is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God so that no one may boast. But if you possess faith in Christ by God's promise, by means of the covenant, you not only possess Christ and all his benefits, you may know that you do. Therefore, you are forgiven. Therefore, you have the Holy Spirit for life. Therefore, you will live beyond the grave. Therefore, you are an heir of the eternal glory. 
So much more could have been said about covenant theology, but the, the divines give that essential structure, and it has served us so well. All right, let's pray together. Father, we thank you for Christ. And Lord, we do thank you for the covenants of the Bible. We thank you for the covenant of grace. We thank you when you made it so clear to Abraham that through faith in the promise, faith in the Messiah and the mediator to come, there's eternal life. And the way you built this teaching and structure so that when Christ came, Lord, and we believe in him, we find in the Bible that we're in a covenant bond with you that is so unbreakable that you have bound yourself to it. What a condescension is that? It is all of grace. Help us then to live as your covenant people, to love one another. We pray for the covenant children of this church. We know they're not automatically saved by being born into Christian households, but they are part of the covenant community, and we pray that you would save them by the word and, and, and through prayer. And Father, we pray then that we, your covenant people, would live in this world according to that gospel law because we know that we are going to live together forever in the age to come. We know it because of Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.